This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Brina Garen, and you're listening to Hex Positive. Welcome, witches. This is Episode 7 of Hex Positive. I'm your host, Bree Nagarin, and today we'll be diving into the second half of the process for writing and casting your own spells. If you haven't already listened to the first half, you should definitely go back and check that out first. It's okay. I'll wait right here until you get back. And if you've already listened, I hope you've got your notes out, because there's lots more to cover today. Real quick, I want to thank everybody for all the positive ratings and reviews I've been seeing. It really helps to get the word out and helps new listeners find the show. It's a free and easy way to support the podcast, and if you're really enjoying the show, you can also go to patreon.com slash where you can get early access to new episodes and extra content for as little as a dollar a month. As of this recording, Hex Positive is currently sitting at 7,600 downloads, with an average of 500 listeners per episode. So we are growing really quickly, and that is all thanks to you. And by the by, if you're enjoying Hex Positive, make sure you also check out our sibling show, BS Free Witchcraft, over on the Nerd and Tie Podcast Network. Trey Dorn, who was just here back in August for that super fun chat about science denial, hosts a monthly podcast about the modern witchcraft movement, minus all the usual BS. Nerd and Ty has a bunch of other fun shows as well, including Stormwood and Associates, Let's Be Legendary, Cool and Unusual Punishment, and lots more. You can check out everything they have to offer over at nerdandtie.com, and I definitely recommend that you do so. So, spell writing. Let's get into it. Just to review real quick for the purposes of this discussion, we're defining spell as the conscious ritualized application of deliberate intent and focused willpower for the purpose of creating change or achieving a particular goal through magical or metaphysical means which is a long way of saying that you're nudging the odds in your favor. We've already covered the first five steps of writing your own spell. You've got your goal or your intent. You've got your ideal manifestation, how you want the spell to work, your target, who or what you want the spell to affect, the length of effect, how long you want the spell to last, and the timing, which is when you'd ideally like to cast your spell. 
Today, I'll be covering materials and methods, choosing the actual components and procedures for casting your spell, incantations, the words which will empower your spell, finalizing and preparing your materials, then casting the spell, and recording the process and the results. Keep in mind that this is my preferred method for putting spells together. Your mileage will certainly vary, and if you have your own way of creating and casting spells, or if you prefer to use spells that other people have written, that's all perfectly fine. Hopefully this will be an insight into how spells work, even if you don't end up using the information for writing them yourself. So first we're going to get into materials and methods. They kind of go hand in hand because the method you choose for casting your spell will probably affect the materials you use. I mean, you could try and use a ball of yarn to cast a candle spell if you were really determined. I'd be very interested to see it. Sometimes you might start with one or both of these things already in mind if that was part of your inspiration. For example, if you read or saw something to do with, say, a wooden spoon, you might be building a spell around the idea of using that as a component. Actually, wooden spoons make really great wands in a pinch, especially for kitchen magic. Or if your inspiration involved flame or fire symbolism, you might already be planning to put together some kind of fire spell. It all depends on where you've gotten your ideas. There's really no wrong place to start putting a spell together. Whether you start with your intent or your target or a component or the casting method, as long as it works for you and makes sense for what you're doing, it's all good. It's at this point that you'll actually want to plan out what you're going to do when you cast the spell what the actual ritual or procedure is going to be. It doesn't have to be perfect or sketched out in prose, but you should have a firm idea of how you want the casting to go and what you'll need in order to make that happen. This allows you to work out the kinks and the rough spots ahead of time and make a list of the materials you need so that when the time comes, you're not missing an important stone or candle or what have you. Materials are a difficult subject to talk about, at least in this time frame, largely because witchcraft can be done with literally anything. And... I don't mean that as a colloquial hyperbole, I mean literally anything, or nothing at all. Again, it depends on what you're doing and what works for you. The vocabulary word for this section is correspondences, those magical associations assigned to various items, plants, colors, and so on, based on a variety of traditions and old world associations with medicine or astrology or what have you. 
Correspondences may vary between traditions, but if you're working with information that came from a set of ideas based somewhere in Western Europe, it'll probably be more or less consistent between books. There's sort of an agreed-upon set of correspondences for things like plants and colors and stones, but some witches also have personal correspondences due to their own associations. This is where it gets sticky, because the agreed-upon correspondences may have their own murky and or slightly dubious origins, and the intent and strength of will empowering a spell is usually much more important than the material components, but things don't just behave a certain way because one person believes it. You follow me? Like, for instance, if someone decides that lavender is a hexing herb because that's just their personal association with it. Lavender's agreed-upon correspondences mostly deal with sleep and peace and cleansing. So, I mean, you can try using it in a hex, but there are more effective materials. I'm not going to be terribly worried if someone shakes a bouquet of lavender and pink ribbons at me and says it's a hex. Make that a handful of thistles and thorny rose stems, and now I'm thinking there's something to be concerned about. Point is, correspondences are what they are, and it helps to learn them just as a baseline. It's like the road atlas of spell components. Learn the major highways first, and then you can start taking back roads when you're good and confident. You'll need a bedrock of clear intent and firmly rooted willpower, and that is more important than whatever physical components you decide to use. But using carefully selected materials with relevant correspondences can help you better visualize the spell, and they'll make the casting that much stronger. Common components for spells include things like herbs, colors, candles, crystals, incense, sticks and stones, shells, poppets, pins, strings, jars, sachet bags, mirrors, simple pen and paper. I could go on for hours. Entire books have been written about materials for spell work and the purposes they serve. I'll probably revisit some of them in more detail in the future when it becomes relevant. But just for now, know that pretty much anything you get your hands on, you can use for witchcraft. What you'll want to do if you are using material components for your spell is to choose things that suit the purpose of your casting. Like I said, there's a lot of variation there, but it's a good baseline to start with if you need ideas. For instance, if you want to do a binding, maybe start with something you can wrap or tie. If you're doing a luck spell or a money draw, maybe try to include some coins. If you want to make a long-term protection spell, find a container for it. And if you want to banish something using fire, make sure you have a fire-safe dish to work in, and so on. It may help to stick with linear associations for your first few self-made workings. 
easy associations that make easy sense and aren't too, too complicated. And then you can kind of branch out into more abstract and nonlinear ideas once you've got the hang of it. Like, say, if you wanted to make a warding or a barrier spell, you might start with that good old-fashioned line of salt and then work up to charms and talismans and energy work, that sort of thing. This is not a judgment on anyone's skill or experience level. It's just an observation I've made in my own practice for where it's easy to start and how that can help you progress. If you need inspiration or supplies, try browsing the aisles of your local supermarket, craft store, thrift shop, or dollar store. There's often plenty of stuff you can get there for your craft that can be fit into a tight budget. Of course, if you have the opportunity to patronize small business in the form of a reputable occult shop or online store, then by all means do so. They really need our help right now. Just know that mundane stores have lots of options too. Not all of us get to live out in the wilds or in the middle of a forest, but if you happen to live in an area with some green space, try going out for a walk if you can. You can find wild plants, sticks, rocks, and so on for your craft while you're out strolling. Just make sure you identify them before collecting them, label everything, and make sure you're not taking too much or anything illegal or endangered. If you don't have the option of going out and gathering materials, you can also work magic with whatever you happen to have lying around the house. You may have to adjust your methods somewhat to suit what's available, but it can be done. Most homes will have a basic set of seasonings, a sewing kit, maybe some office supplies or art materials, depending on what the residents are into. So just look around. Look around, look around. Sorry, too much Hamilton. Uh, look around and get creative. This seems like a good time to bring up another topic that I will definitely be revisiting later. Stealth magic. Sometimes you just don't have the option of working openly for one reason or another. This is where using mundane everyday objects will be your best friend. You can create charms or magical workings or talismans and to anyone else it might just look like an art project or home decor. If you have a crafty side you can really lean into this. Work your magic with decorations and everyday household items, and there's a good chance that it won't be questioned as long as you do your due diligence. Just remember that if you're in a situation where practicing witchcraft at all might constitute a danger to your safety, I strongly encourage you to either find another safe space outside of the home to practice, or hold off on practicing at all until you're in a better situation. 
your safety is much more important than any spell. Please keep yourselves safe. One more thing before we move on to the next step. Deities. Now, some witches call on deities for every spell that they cast. Others do it occasionally or when the situation is dire. And still others never do it at all. There's a wide spectrum of belief regarding whether and when and how to involve a higher power in one's magic. This part of the process is entirely up to you. I just want to offer a small reminder to whoever needs to hear it. Deities are not components. They do not have correspondences. They have patronages. They have realms of influence. They cannot and should not be reduced to a list of names and concepts. They are not pets or BFFs or memes or collectible trinkets. They are divine beings. If you're going to call on a higher power for a spell, it shouldn't be one chosen at random or because it's a deity commonly associated with whatever you happen to be doing. If you're going to call on a higher power, especially by name, you should always do so from a place of sincerity and respect, and you should expect to give a small offering in return. Don't call on somebody solely because their purview involves something that you want. Also, working with a deity does not automatically make you a priest or priestess of said deity. I could name a few people who need to be reminded of that particular fact. Now, I'm a secular witch. I don't regularly involve my patron deities in my magic, and my craft does not contain religious elements. But I still understand these concepts, and I abide by them. This is one of the few times you'll hear me talk about deity work in witchcraft because it's an important point to make. I know there's a lot of aesthetic-based stuff floating around on the internet that makes deities seem more like novelties than divine beings, up to and including a post I saw on Instagram matching witches to the deities they should work with based on their zodiac sign. Hang on. Sorry, my eyes just rolled so hard I think I saw my own brain. Anyway, do yourself a favor. Do not get sucked into this way of thinking. Your relationship with whatever deities you choose to work with is going to be entirely your own, but arrogance isn't going to do you any favors either with the divine or with the wider witchcraft community. Don't be that witch. We'll be back with more Hex Positive after this brief sponsored break. If you're craving more witchy goodness in your podcast feed, check out Witchcraft for the Restless. Hosted by Kai, your resident queer folk herbalist, Witchcraft for the Restless is a monthly podcast that focuses on the many intersections of magic, feminism, nature, tarot, and everyday life. Every episode focuses on a new topic with fun recurring segments like Rustlings from the Grove, where Kai answers questions from the community, 
or the witchcraft cabinet, which talks about different spell ingredients and their uses in magic. And my personal favorite, Restless, where Kai just dishes on what she's up to. It's like sitting down for a chat with a good friend. I've really been enjoying this podcast. Kai and I have been mutuals on social media for half of forever, and I've always really enjoyed what she has to say. She's fun to listen to, she's clearly done her homework, and she's not afraid to tackle tough topics like racism in the witch community. This show isn't even half a dozen episodes in, and I'm already hooked. Check out Witchcraft for the Restless on your favorite podcast app. Make sure you follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at The Restless Witch, and sign up for Kai's Patreon to get bonus episodes in between the regular releases. And remember, a little restlessness now and again is a good thing. And now, back to the show. Moving on. Incantations. The concept of magic words or words of power is nearly as old as language itself. Every magical tradition has some version of it, and modern witchcraft is certainly no exception. There are a few different kinds of incantations. The most common ones we see nowadays are the long invocations, the repeated ritual chants, the rhyming couplets, and activation words or phrases. So let's break that down real quick, because these are all very useful, and they each have a particular sort of niche where they work best. Again, this is a much broader concept that I'm going to make it out to be, and I am kind of condensing this information, so if I miss something, just please bear with me and know that there is lots more information out there to find, and if it interests you, I do suggest that you uh, do some research on the side. Long incantations are things like the Witch's Song from Macbeth, that double-double toil and trouble poem that we all love so much. These are usually seen in more complicated castings or rituals, sometimes in group workings, as are repeated chants. Uh, these are distinct from mantras, by the way. Although a mantra is a repeated word or sound in a ritual setting, there are particular mantras such as Vedic hymns, which do have religious or spiritual significance in Hindu and Buddhist beliefs. So that's an important distinction to make. Anyway, if you're working with a group or performing a big seasonal ritual or something large and involved, it might make sense to use longer incantations or chants to keep the energy going for a longer period of time or to keep all the participants on the same page. If you're doing a shorter spell or something on the go, you can fall back on rhymes or activation phrases or singular words of power. Rhyming incantations do seem to be the preferred or at least the most often recommended form of incantations we see in modern witchcraft literature. And they're certainly a lot of fun to make if you're poetically inclined. I know I certainly enjoy making them. However, if you 
just can't manage it, or if it doesn't particularly matter to you, the spell doesn't actually have to rhyme. It's, it, it's window dressing, really. Makes things sound nice, gives the spell a rhythm that's very pleasing, but it's really only useful if you can convey your meaning effectively in rhyme. So if you can, then by all means do it, but if you can't, then just speak plainly. Activation phrases are a shorter version of this. So mode it be is one example. It's a brief phrase that you say in order to signal that it's time for the spell to start working. Words of power are similar, but they often have a greater spiritual or ritual significance depending on which one you're using. Examples of this range from the old standard abracadabra and yes, that is a magic word, look it up, right up to the well-known Expelliarmus from the Potterverse. These shorter phrases or single words are great if you want to make a spell that you activate on the fly, or set in place to activate when needed, like a household ward or a personal protection. Whatever it is you decide to use as an incantation, it should be relevant to whatever it is you're doing. I know this seems like a no-brainer, but we are covering our bases here. Because you don't want to be casting a money draw spell and trying to empower it with an incantation that might be more appropriate for a love spell because your inspiration was some poem or other. It's not that it would cause anything to malfunction or backfire, but it would be a split in focus and intent, and you don't want that. Your incantation can be in your first or second language, or another if you're choosing. If you want to differentiate your regular speech from magical workings in that fashion. Latin is a good go-to, if you can find reliable translations, I suggest you use a dictionary and a grammar guide rather than relying solely on Google Translate. Don't get too fancy with it, though. Don't let your intentions get muddied because you used a word you don't understand. When in doubt, always go with something you can clearly define and easily pronounce. And keep in mind that some languages have their own sacred associations with certain words and should not be used as novelties or window dressing. A little research will help you know what's appropriate to use and what isn't. If you're unsure of what to use for an incantation, existing snippets of poetry or text or song lyrics, or even movie lines can provide some really great inspiration. I'll refer back to the Scottish play for an example. Lady Macbeth's pre-murder speech makes a great warm-up for hexing. You know the one. Come, you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here and fill me from the crown to the toe, top full of direst cruelty. Gendered language notwithstanding, it really puts you in the mindset. Of course, this is all assuming that you want to use 
a vocal incantation in the first place. So if you don't, you can just skip this step altogether. So at this point, you've essentially finished writing the spell. You know what you want it to do and how you want it to work. You know what your target is. You know the timing and how long the spell's meant to last. You know the materials you want to use, any incantations you'll be saying, any deities you'll be calling on, and how you want the casting to proceed. Pause here. Take a moment to review. Make sure it all fits together and makes sense. If there's anything that seems clunky or needs a little fine-tuning or might be difficult to accomplish in the moment, go ahead and fix that. Remember, it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be grimoire-ready or dolled up for the internet. This just has to work for you, what you want to accomplish and what you're comfortable doing. Once you've got your spell ready, it's time for prep work, and this is an important step. If you have to cut up herbs or dress a candle or have certain bits of string ready, do that ahead of time. Make sure any ritual tools you plan on using are clean, cleansed, and ready. If you have to bless or consecrate something, do it. If you have to collect something, do it. Plan ahead. If you're scheduling your casting for a full moon night, make sure you have your materials ready by the day before. This isn't for any special sacred or magical reason. It is purely to keep you from scrambling at the last minute. I have found that my castings go a lot more smoothly when I put in just a little bit of extra prep work ahead of time. The less you have to worry about doing in the moment stuff that's not actually a hardcore part of the casting, the smoother the casting is likely to go. If you don't have to stop what you're doing in the middle of the casting to go and find something or prepare something, then you don't have to lose focus and it's much easier to make the spell work the way you want it to. If you're going to make the prep work part of the ritual, that's fine too. Prepping ahead of time ensures that you have everything you need so you don't get halfway through and realize, oh crap, I don't have a beeswax candle or a pin or what have you. Prep your casting space while you're at it. Make sure your space is clear and easy to navigate and has everything you need in easy reach. If you're going to be using fire, clear the area of fire hazards and have some means of extinguishing it nearby. Take steps to minimize distractions and interruptions if you can. The idea is to have everything ready or as ready as you can possibly make it so that when it's time for your casting, you can just cast and not worry about missing components or a messy workspace or someone walking in on you in the middle of it. Now that you've gotten everything ready, it's time to cast your spell. Once again, clear your space, have your materials at the ready, 
make sure all proper precautions are taken for safety and to minimize those distractions and interruptions. Cleanse the space and cast a circle if that's something that you want to do. Cast your spell following the procedure you decided on beforehand. You may find that you have to alter things mid-flow if something doesn't quite work as expected, and that is completely fine. It doesn't mean that the spell is not going to work unless you're going to do something really, really intricate and fiddly and complicated where it absolutely will not work unless things are done in a really precise manner, you should be totally okay. And keep in mind that the casting doesn't have to be a big involved ritual that takes the better part of an hour to complete. You can do something much, much shorter and simpler if that suits your purposes. It's all about what kind of spell you're casting and how complicated the process is. If you're just tossing out a quick incantation or scattering some herbs, that's going to be relatively brief. If you're burning down a candle or creating a talisman or a craft item, that's obviously going to take longer. Just make sure that you're prepared for the length of time that it's going to take to accomplish what you want to accomplish. It's not always possible to eliminate interruptions or distractions, but trust me when I say, pee before you start. We'll be back with more Hex Positive after this brief sponsored break. Since we're all heartily fed up with Amazon right about now, I've decided to open a small online witch shop on my WordPress. You can pick up copies of Grove Daughter Witchery, The Sisters Grimoire, and Pestlework, or shop for witchy goodies like banishing powder, witch web kits, and witchy buttons. You might even get a special surprise or two with your order. Go to brainagarin.wordpress.com shop to place your order today. And now, back to the show. We already talked about setting your intent to determine what the spell is meant to do way back in the beginning of episode six. When you go to actually cast the spell, you're going to want to focus on will. There's a lot of ways that the difference between the two gets explained. For our purposes, think of it this way. Intent is what you hope the spell will accomplish. Will is what you put into the spell to make it happen. Make sense? Intent is the goal setting. Will is the follow through. So as you're performing the casting, you'll need to hold the intent of your spell firmly in your mind and channel your willpower toward making it happen. This can take the form of visualizing a successful outcome or maintaining an internal surety that what you want to happen is going to happen, or focusing on the idea of how you want the results to manifest. The actual process of casting the spell can help with this. It's easier to focus yourself when you're actually in the moment, when you can feel that energy, when you've put yourself 
into a ritual space and a witching state of mind. After you've cast the spell, you might feel a little strange. You might be highly energized and anxious, or you might feel drained and tired and in need of a nap. I like to call this the witch's hangover. And it's a common enough occurrence that most of the witches I know and have spoken to have experienced it at one time or another. I get them after heavy spell work, usually something that requires a lot of energy, or sometimes when I cast a spell when I'm already a little bit tired or hungry. It's nothing to worry about. Just rest a bit, maybe have a snack, definitely hydrate, and you'll be fine. Once you've recovered, write everything down that you haven't already. You can use whatever dedicated book you use for your craft, or just make a text file for posterity. I know my pen doesn't always move as fast as my brain, so typing is easier for me, and it might be for you too. At bare minimum, record the date of the casting, the intent of the spell, and the method you use to cast it. Hopefully, you've already written down all the other particulars beforehand. For a detailed record, mark down the intent, the date, the target, the materials, any words of power or incantations, the procedure, and any other relevant details. If the timing is significant, write that down too. If you change something during the casting, record that too. Also, make an effort to record your own impressions at the time. How smoothly the ritual went, what worked and what didn't for the casting procedure, things you'd like to use again, things you'd do differently in the future, and how you felt when you did the casting. This makes it much easier to check your progress later and to look back and see how well your spell worked, if you have a way of telling whether it worked. It's not always easy to tell, but we will discuss that another time. These records are also a way of refining your practice by discovering your strengths and showing how you've grown over time. You'll find that things do become easier with practice. There's not exactly a measurable leveling up that happens per se, especially if you're a solitary witch. So keeping a record of past castings is like your own personal progress report. You don't have to write everything down, but it certainly helps if you're tracking your progress and development through journaling in some fashion. It's much easier to look back and be able to see, oh, I did it this way for this spell the first time I tried it, and now I'm doing something different, and then be able to see what worked and what didn't along the way. Even just a note in your planner, like, toss some herbs in a cauldron and hex the patriarchy, will help you track your progress and remember when you've done things so you can see how they pan out later. And remember also that just because you're writing it down doesn't mean you need to share it with anybody. You can keep it completely private if you want to. Or, if you feel like it, if you want feedback or just to show it to other witches, you can share. 
This is totally up to you. Some witches prefer to work in total secrecy. Others like to workshop their spell work. And some just like being able to go, this is my spell that I made and I think it's pretty cool and I hope you guys like it too. Which, incidentally, is kind of how the Sisters Grimoire happened, but I digress. Also, if you decide to share the particulars of the craft with others in this way, please know that you don't have to share everything. It's okay to keep some things to yourself. Keep a few spells in your back pocket. And if you want to write a spell that you think others might find controversial in some way, don't let the idea that some other witch might not like it stop you from putting the idea down. Like I said, you don't have to share it. Maybe it's just a creative exercise, maybe it's cathartic, or maybe you've got magic to do that's not very friendly. Whatever your motive, you don't need someone else's approval to write a spell. Or to cast it. Some final tips before we wrap things up. If you're worried about something going wrong, leave yourself an out or a way to undo the spell if you should find that you need to. Build in a thread you can unravel or make an object that you can dismantle or destroy. This doesn't need to be done with every spell. But if you're working with bindings or baneful magic or attraction, it does help to have an out. Don't worry too much about whether the spell is visibly working or not. Sometimes it's really hard or even impossible to tell. Just trust that you've done your work and let it be. If you cast a spell that's meant to have a short-term, highly visible effect and it doesn't manifest within about a month or so, examine your process and try again, or try a different approach. If you cast a long-term spell like Wards, expect to refresh it periodically. You can use the same spell cast over again to shore them up, or you can make an entirely new one, whichever works for you. Whatever kind of spell you cast, there is always a possibility of repercussions on some level. All actions have consequences, and all magic has a price. And before you cast a spell, any spell, just make sure that you're prepared to accept them. If you're worried, cleanse and protect yourself and your space after you cast. If you're worried about the threefold law or the rule of three, please refer back to episode three. I'll be talking about various types of spells in more detail in future episodes. So that does it for this massive two-parter on spell writing. Your homework for the month, should you choose to accept it, is to try and write a spell of your own using this method. It can be for any purpose that you wish, and you can keep it in your archives forever or share it with the world. If you end up casting a spell that you wrote, feel free to drop me an email and let me know how it went. I always love hearing witchy stories and feedback. It just gives me life. 
Next month, there's lots of ooky spooky pumpkin-scented witchy goodness to come because it's Halloween season, baby! I'm really looking forward to sharing the contents of my cauldron with all of you. So make sure you tune in and bring your circle with you. Until then, I'm Brina Garen, reminding you to stay safe, wear your mask, and always practice safe hex. Hex Positive is a proud member of the Nerd and Tie Podcast Network. Check out everything they have to offer, including our sibling podcast, BS Free Witchcraft, over at nerdandtie.com. Intro and outro music by Kevin McLeod. For all the latest updates, follow at hex underscore podcast on Twitter. You can also follow me at at Brina Garen on Twitter and Instagram. For more information on my books, you can check out my WordPress and my Amazon author page. And if you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash Stay safe, wash your hands, and remember, always practice safe hacks.